Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest episode of Match of the Week. We are your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross. We've decided to do a little bit of a thematic pairing, because a lot of these will be matches that we've long intended to watch. This will be matches that we have, in some way, shape, or form, pretty vivid memories of watching, because we've taken it in turns to pick our favourite match that we have seen live. And so it's my turn, Lorcan, and I am going with a match from Ring of Honor's show when they were touring Liverpool in 2007. So we're going a fair bit back now, more than 14 years actually at this point. And it's a tag team championship match where recently crowned champions, the Briscoe brothers, Jay and Mark, make their defense against the Dragon Gate pairing of Naruki Doi. And a familiar face for recent weeks in the five-star world, Shingo minus the Takagi at this stage. And minus fashion sense in my eyes as well. Well, his his hair is an impressive variant of the mullet. Yes. I will say that much. As I'm the one that chose it, I suppose, Simon, you need to be sort of the interrogator as to ask more questions about it. So maybe you should be leading this discussion more about why... Want what you want to know about my picks and my experiences and everything. So feel free to ask me anything about the match. I don't need you to make me explain to you how ladies part. Hey, because <laughs> I, I I looked at the car at uh, the uh, date on the card. I'd have been sixteen at the time, so I wouldn't have been able to like you know get there really if I'd have been like into Ring of Honor at the time. Not that I was. So, I'm going to go broad strokes, first of all. Ring of Honor. How would you come across it? You've covered it in, obviously, your show. I was more into Ring of Honor around this point than I ever have been specifically into the WWE, I would say, except when I first was in becoming aware of it. And WWF was all that I knew when I was just starting at seven or eight. Because very soon after that, WCW was on ITV, so I was probably watching more WCW than I was WWF. And so I didn't really have anything close to a brand loyalty to either side, really. I suppose during the Attitude Era, I thought WWF was a better show, but I didn't want WCW to die or anything like that. But when you're in your late teens, early 20s, you're very much wanting, especially when you're in your late teens, you want to have an identity to something that's new and exciting and that's yours when you've just turned 18 and what you are into is wrestling and a new promotion comes along in 2002 that has a specific philosophy that's catering towards the smart fan the cultured fan in their eyes that's not all about roided up giant guys but is about technical wrestling and logical storylines treating it as a sport and making sure that every show had a match that you would probably rate four stars or higher at a minimum. I always said that there's that, if ECW was the punk movement, everything that happened in the indie scene was like all the offshoots of punk that happened in the British and American scenes in the early 80s and late 70s. 
So from punk, you get new wave, you get new romantics, you get post-punk, you get American hardcore music, you get variants of heavy metal coming in and meshing together at the same time. So after ECW, you're getting Ring of Honor, but you're also getting Combat Zone Wrestling, you get XPW, and you're getting Chikara. And you're getting PWG that are down a lighter tone. And so all these differing identities are starting to show up that you can really latch onto. And so Ring of Honor was what I latched onto. And from basically the first couple of shows, I was always on their website refreshing it, reading the forums, but very rarely contributing to the forums. A filthy, filthy lurker. Yeah, I guess. Just really getting into the whole culture of it. Like I said, because I was there from the ground up. I knew what happened on the very first Ring of Honor show. I had a VHS copy of the first five Ring of Honor shows that I was watching during my first year at uni. I was going through this constant cycle of those five Ring of Honor shows and the few DVDs I had of things like Futurama and the first couple of series of Family Guy and The Simpsons. These VHSs, is that your only way of accessing Ring of Honor at this time? At that time, because there was no YouTube or anything like that when I was getting into U- at school. And Ring of Honor were really, really... Ironically, considering they came from RF Video, they were really vigilant about piracy. I've already told the story in the Matthew episode about the legend of them doing a show with FWA in 2003 that saw... A guy from Strong Style Video, which was the UK equivalent of RF Video, secretly selling copies of Ring of Honor under the desk, basically, <laughs> with Ring of Honor right there. That's the legend. I don't know how true that is, but that was the legend at the time. And it really kicking off at that point. So, yeah, it was just my thing. So I was just always reading up on the results, reading reviews of shows that I couldn't get when I got a bit of money when I, when I started working properly and... And also when I got student loans, I would buy a few DVDs and watch them. And then, like, a few years ago, I just sold most of them off. It turned out some of them were quite rare and ended up selling for, like, 25, 30 quid. Whereas others were a bit more common. I don't regret selling them off for the most part. But, um, yeah, I just... Really, when when Gabe Sapolsky left was when I stopped being so tied down to Ring of Honor, because I said it was kind of like watching The West Wing after Aaron Sorkin left. It just never quite felt the same. Now, that's not fair to the talent, and it's ultimately the talent that will always make a wrestling promotion as good or as bad as it is. Up to, Of course, obviously, bookers can ruin everything. Around the 2002 to 2005 time, well, 2004 more, Ring of Honor and TNA were sharing a lot of the talent, and they were doing a lot better in Ring of Honor than they were in TNA as far as compelling storylines and the like go. And also just you get older and you stop being able to give so much of your life over to something and maybe you get a bit of perspective and you realise that it's not all about that. Or you go down a rabbit hole and start quoting Jordan Peterson and demanding the release of a Snyder Cut. And I didn't want to go down that route of, of pointing out how we're living in a society. So, so I guess I was already starting to wane a little bit, but this was a really exciting. I'd always wanted to see Ring of Honor live. This was the third time they'd come to the UK. They'd been the FWA show. They'd done two shows in Liverpool in 2006, including what many people might see as maybe the best match of both of their careers and maybe the best Ring of Honor match of all time, where Brian Danielson beat Nigel McGuinness to unify the world and pure titles. That's the one where they both bleed really heavily, right? Yeah, and the head injuries of that are just utterly horrible to watch. And Nigel McGuinness, I think, deeply regrets what he did in that match. There's a bit where just he's been pulled into the ring post and it's really gruesome. But it's still an amazing match. Uh, But I didn't have the finances to do it at the time. But 
what happened with the Ring of Honor show was, I, and I knew it was coming, and I didn't have a ticket when I went there. I was assuming it hadn't sold out. That's interesting, because you don't drive. Well, that was the thing. I don't drive. I knew when it was on. It was a rare instance where I had a Saturday off from work, because I was working at HMV at the time. So, you're on the train? And so, I just woke up in my I woke up in my bed, sit, and I went, fuck it, let's go to Liverpool. And so, I travelled to Liverpool uh, on the train, just grabbed the ticket, went there, tried to figure out... And this is before smartphones, so I'm trying to remember now how I... That right there shows... Obviously, how much of a fuck it, I'll go mentality you had. You bought an on the day ticket on a British train. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I even had my rail card at that point either, which I could have used, which I could have got a discount on. I can't remember. I know I used it when I was at uni, but um, and Ring of Honor weren't touring around Aberyst with me. <laughs> so that was even more unlikely. But well, the beauty of living in Birmingham is that you can get to most places in the UK on trains within a relatively decent amount of time and also i'll tell you what i probably took the train was london midland because there is a train that does like loads of stops and to liverpool lime street and those are usually relatively cheap they're the ones it's like it's only six pounds to go to london yeah but you just got, you just gotta stop at every stop and it's about twice as long as the virgin trains are on the same line but yeah that's the thing that's the beauty of being in birmingham you know it's only about two hours from all the major cities two to three hours from all the major cities if you're lucky on the trains. And so I got there and then I took a taxi and I asked him to take me to the Olympia Theatre because I knew that was where it was. So they dropped me off there. And just being in a queue with Ring of Honor fans, that was an eye-opening experience. I remember there was one guy, I was like, I think... So it was on the 3rd of March this event took place. And I saw this guy and I was like, I think this is the first time this man has seen sunlight this year. (laughs) I've never seen a man so pale in all my life. Was he quite tall? No, he was... I don't recall him being tall. Sorry, because you remind me of someone I've come across when I was uh, in the northwest of England who was a wrestling fan. <laughs> and we just queued in, and I was just hoping my luck. I had 20 quid in my hand, and I asked Alex Shane for a ticket. And Alex Shane sold me a ticket. Briefly told him that I used to listen to his talk radio show and told him that I called him once about Brock Lesnar. <laughs> and then and and thanked him for putting on the show which he said thank you not many people have actually bothered to do that <laughs> so, <laughs> show a little bit of appreciation the olympia theater is a fascinating venue to go to anyway it's a beautiful old victorian theater yeah when i watch this match i'm gonna get a bit niche here there's the boxing game fight night champion has like this uh, venue which is basically a parody of the royal albert hall and it struck me as the olympia struck me as like a similar version of that it is a very stereotypical yeah it does have a little bit of the your call feel to it yeah yeah i do wonder if that might have been an inspiration for rev pro because the guy that's the referee i think in almost every match or every match on this show i remember that the fans were chanting theo walcott at yes because he's got the hair yeah, yeah and yeah. sometimes it's racist but sometimes they do look a bit like the person that they're chanting <laughs> about and that guy <laughs> did look a bit like theo it's not as bad as the time when I was at Villa Park and the people on the further end of the whole 10 started chanting for uh, Mustafa Salifu when it was actually Nigel Rio Coca that had been warming up on the touchline. That was uh, that was a much worse experience, <laughs> that one. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, you've told me that one before and yeah, that gets... You've got 10,000 people nearby just sort of squirming a little in their seats hoping that Nigel didn't notice. 
he knew. <laughs> of course he bloody knew. Talk me through the vibe of the Olympia then, because it's it seemed like intimate. Yeah, it is. Putting it in a theatre is always a weird experience for a wrestling show because it's not designed for the four sides. There's literally a wall that you can't sit at. What they do is they bring an entrance gantry way to the, um, and they've got the ring in sort of where the first few rows, the orchestra pit, I suppose, area would be. Usually a lot of those theatres will have like the first few rows you can remove and put back in wherever required. So you've got people on the sides as well when they're making the entrance on the ramp. But it is weird just seeing it there. And then also you have the balcony, the people sitting above there. Which must have been a cool experience as well to look at it from that vantage point. And also the the royal boxes. Because I remember the year before they'd come to do a show and Robbie Brookside was actually on the card. He was like the local guy that they brought in. At this show they brought Puck in as the local guy. There were loads of kids like up in one of the boxes that obviously their parents or something like a, a you know shared pet friends or something had bought for them. And they obviously knew Robbie Brookside from just like the regular British things and this them being at a Ring of Honor show doesn't mean anything to them. So when Robbie came out they were excited and doing like the Robbie chants and all that and the smart ring of honor fans didn't take kindly to it and started telling to shut up yeah was it uh, which is just but one again another one of those moments where you're like god i i really have him with the wrong crowd and then they were chanting like past your bedtime which is quite funny but that was the thing like this was another one of those shows where i was like do i want to be on these people's side i remember when it was the pack match it was puck against roderick strong on this show and two things i remember standing out well three things one was that puck seemed nervous it didn't feel like he was at his very best at that point and then i remember i saw him at the edinburgh fringe where he took part in the first one of these shows where they brought wrestlers and comedians together to do a show at the pleasance grand and he gotten so much bigger since then yeah like he's always been in shape but the muscle mass that he'd accumulated by then was in- insane and still is to this day he is he is a freak of nature and i also remember he did one move off the top rope to the outside and matt seidel had like poked his head out on the entrance way to watch it is like i maybe think the pack had asked Oh, he'd ask Pac. Like, it was, it was a movie he knew was coming and he was looking to watch. Yeah. That was one of the other things I remember. But up and down the card, it's a really good card. We were just saying, we were looking up on Cage Match before we started recording. And this is rated uh, on the Cage Match forum listings as the 12th greatest Ring of Honor show of all time. So that's pretty cool. The only one I went to go to was the one of the better ones. And across the card, I mean, there wasn't a bad match on the show at all. There was Homicide beating Davy Richards. I remember the fans chanting 187 and like one of the security guards was just hired for the event, like a bouncer, being quite amused at a bunch of mostly white nerdy wrestling fans <laughs> chanting 187, which is the code for murder in New York police filing. Sarah Del Rey against Alison Danger. I remember that being mostly quiet and a few unfortunate leery cheers when they hug at the start of the match when they do the Code of Honor handshake. And... Yeah, like Ring of Honor's relationship with women's wrestling is... It's never been great. They tried, but they've never quite put it together. I mean, it wasn't like there wasn't talent. They had the whole Shimmer thing, but they had their own promotion, essentially, sort of like an AJW situation at this time. And that was where people like Sarah Del Rey and Alison Danger and Lacey and Daisy Hayes were really allowed to shine. Then there was a tag match between Jimmy Jacobs and Jimmy Rave against BJ Whitmer and Colt Cabana. That was good fun. And they fought in the crowd for that one. Jimmy Rave and BJ Whitmer fought up on the balcony. They went up one end and then came down the other. 
And that is the moment, if you watch the show, that you can see me very briefly. If any of you have fifth year festival available to you. There's a moment where BJ Whitmer kicks Jimmy Rave to the floor from the steps. I'm there with very messy hair. With a black Lacoste polo neck shirt. Not quite sure whether I should be applauding or not. Of what was happening. And just having a big goofy grin on my face. Whilst a very, very vocal, aggressive fan... Oh, it must have been the other way around, because it must have been BJ Whitmer that was being knocked to the ground. So that was why I was applauding, but it's like, yeah, but he's the baby face, so I shouldn't really be like, I don't know what I was doing. But this very aggressive fan was flipping off Jimmy Rave right to his face, remarking to him that he enjoyed pleasuring men in a certain (laughs) way. Again, wrestling fans. That was a lot of fun, that one as well. Then there was a two out of three false match between Matt Seidel and Delirious, and I remember I desperately needed a piss. And so, because it was a two out of three falls match, I thought I'd be okay to leave at a certain point, and I, I wouldn't miss the worst of it. No idea where the toilet was. And like I said, this is an old, old building. Signs? Signs of a wusses. <laughs> Figure it out yourself. It was really weird just trying to get... And it was so quiet where I went down these corridors to nothing and finding a place to relieve myself, which was a toilet. <laughs> and then just in that... It was a toilet. <laughs> And and then just, like I said, there was no security or anything around there. There was no, like, merchandise table or anything. I do remember getting told this story later on. That there was an afternoon signing session where wrestlers were signing things and selling them. And Jimmy Jacobs had nothing to sell, so he was just had bottles of water. And he was saying, drop me to sign these bottles of water and you can have them. <laughs> right. Okay. But anyway, the other thing I remember was Delirious and Matt Seidel, because they'd wrestled each other so many times at that point. Matt Seidel had a championship belt that he won at Dragon Gate, and like a little piece of it had fallen off, I remember. That was a bit awkward. And he he said to the ref at one point, he tried to kick me. And then Delirious said, he tried to rape me. (laughs) So fucking hell. There was a Roderick Strong pack match, and then it was this tag match. So we'll skip that for now. But like I said, that was the best match I've ever seen live. So obviously you know how I feel about it in that moment. And then the main event was Samoa Joe, who's on his farewell tour at this point, facing off against some of his classic opponents. And so this was the one against Nigel McGuinness. And they did the fake injury finish thing where he gave him a muscle buster on the apron. And it was like, the match can't continue. And in that moment, you're like, is this a shoot? Is this a work? You're not 100% sure, but you suspect... And Nigel starts being carried to the back for a suspected neck injury. And Samoa Joe's like, Nigel, you British pussy, come over here and shake my hand. And Nigel comes back in and just slaps him hard across the face. (laughs) And they had Joe win, which did surprise me a little bit. At the time, I thought you should be putting over the guys as you make your way out. But he didn't do that a lot. He He didn't lose to many people on that run. He did lose to one or two. I can't remember whom off the top of my head now. But for the most part, they kept him looking really strong. I guess they figured he'd come back at some uh, point, yeah. which he did. Uh, he had he had a match with Tyler Black, I remember, that wasn't filmed for a live show or something. There was a rule about it that they couldn't be seen in certain respects. And then he did have a very brief return between him leaving TNA and coming to the WWE, where he challenged Jay Briscoe for the world title. So he gave a big emotional, passionate speech. So then we get to this match. The reason I think it stuck out in my mind were sort of two things, really. It was great fun. I Well, three things. I'd always been really passionate about the Briscoes because Jay Briscoe was literally my age 
when Ring of Honor started. He was 18 years old and he was already wrestling. Like, the whole thing was, they were so good that they were being hired for these big shows at 16, 17, 18. And the storyline for the first few months was because they were wrestling in Pennsylvania, literally Mark Briscoe couldn't have a license to wrestle. Jesus. So he had to be on the outside and he antagonized Jay for losing because Jay was still up and coming at that point. Jay had the first official match in Ring of Honor history ever against the Amazing Red. There was a, like a match angle before then with the Hit Squad and the Christopher Street connection. But technically the first ever Ring of Honor match featured Jay Briscoe. So that was one of the reasons I was just so keen on them. And they were a great team. And it was always, it was never a sure that they would stick around for the first few years of Ring of Honor. They did disappear for a couple of years around 2003, 2004 because they were going to go and become college football players but they ended up going back to wrestling that surprises me a little bit because i look at their physiques and i'm not it doesn't say football player to me well you know teenagers can't really do i mean i'm sure they do now because they've got insane regimens that they have to keep yeah but they are in great shape. oh god yeah 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 and they're they're also relatively tall as far as wrestlers go they're both over six foot in in the indie scene that's pretty tall and as this match taught me they are rapid as well well that's the thing they do moves they do a lot of moves that was the criticism of them how many moves they would do in every match and it was always like kick outs at ridiculous things in a way they were proto young bucks yes i can see that they didn't have that smart ass self-reflective fourth wall breaking edge to them like the young bucks did but a lot of what they did is kind of along the lines of what the young bucks would do but they would add a, a sense of humor to it i suppose and an ironic detachment which you either go with or don't whereas the briscoes gotta unfortunately look past the confederacy imagery that they went with and especially when you consider they're from delaware yeah and as far as i'm aware delaware ain't that deep south Joe Biden was the senator of Delaware. I don't see Joe Biden needing to ever have a confederacy imagery around him. But I think it's that Delaware, Virginia. It's more just in the middle of the country, not so much the south of the country where everyone wears hats and says Says dodgy things. Yeah, speaking of saying dodgy things, that's something the briscoe one of the briscoes has done well that, yeah that's the thing that's really holding them back now was that jay briscoe whilst he was champion was saying things about how he'd like he'd do something to his son if his son came out as gay i can't remember how bad it was but it was bad that's all you need to know that's been the only thing that really ever put me off the briscoes and to be fair mark's never said any of that stuff and mark's whole thing is that he does seem to be quite an eccentric. I remember there was this story that they did like an IQ test or something. All the Ring of Honor talent did around this sort of time. And Brian Danielson was the highest. And Mark Briscoe was second highest. This whole match you hear him occasionally do his redneck ninja thing. Where he go, yeah, <laughs> Yes, I did hear that. They did that once and Necro Butcher scored yeah. really high as well, didn't they, with the IQ test? I think they do it when they're waiting yes. for planes. Maybe Necro Butcher was another one as well, yeah. So let's go to the match. Another reason why I loved it and it stuck in my mind was I got to see a title change, which I did not expect. At this point, the Briscoe Brothers, they were making it pretty damn clear we are building the promotion as much around the Briscoe Brothers as we are anyone. I mean, they have some pay-per-views coming up over the course of the year and Briscoes are in like main events of those. And this is also the year that made Kevin Steen and El Generico because they're like the main rivals for the Briscoes for the rest of this year. They'd already had one match on this fifth year festival because Steen and El Generico had had like a not so great run with the company in 2006 or 2005 and it wasn't looking like it was going to work for them there but then they came for this one match and they tore the house down with them and then they basically built the tag division around them except for this little blip 
in it, which was the completion of the Shingo in Ring of Honor story, because Shingo had started wrestling for Dragon Gate in 2004, and they had a deal with Ring of Honor at this time, obviously had the 2006 Dragon Gate 6-man tag that Naruki Doi was a part of. So there was a talent exchange, so they took Shingo on as just Shingo at this point. He was Shingo Takagi, but when he was in Ring of Honor, he was just called Shingo. The whole story was he felt like he hadn't had his career, his time in Ring of Honor wasn't complete until he won a title. Yeah, because the commentator mentioned that. Like, I think he challenged Morishima for the world title at one point, either before, I think it must have been before this, actually. And uh, then he, and so I think he challenged for the FIP title. He might have challenged for the tag title once before. But this was maybe his last chance to really do it before he had to head back to Dragon Gate. And what's so great about this match, I think, the, the thing that I that I just was amazed at when watching it was they never put a foot wrong. There were so many moves, so many intricate spots in this whole match. The only thing that looked like it was a mild error, if anything, was there was a moment where Shingo's got... Mark or Jay in place for a slingshot and Naruki's on the second rope and then Naruki realizes oh he's got to chop him and then go to the second rope yeah the idea is that he slingshots him in Naruki Doi chops him he falls back onto his knees but to me that looked quite natural because I think the way it came across with Shingo was like go on hit him first and he's like oh yeah I'll do that <laughs> it made it look like he wasn't being prompted it was a natural thing you know what i mean so yeah i'm not claiming this is some great psychology masterpiece i'm not claiming this is a five-star match but as a spectacle it was so much fun it essentially becomes a tornado tag for the final 10 minutes yeah. or so. i think at one point they try and enforce a five count on naroki and shingo and the, the ref obviously has to stop counting when he realizes they're setting up something so he's like oh well also I noticed as well, the ref is not paying attention to who's the legal man towards the end. If anyone tries to pin anyone, he'll make a count. If Jay had tried to pin Mark, I'm not going to make a count at that point. We win! And lose. <laughs> I don't really know what we do here. A three-man sack race will determine who will win. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed watching this match. I did notice the high volume of kickouts. So when you brought up, obviously that is a, well, the moves. Are the, Briscoe yeah. trademark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see the Young Buck comparisons. I really, really can. Obviously, I know the stuff that Jay said, obviously, which, which we obviously don't agree with. Prior to that, having seen this match at this point in time, it baffles me that they were never like taken up to a higher level. But then again, tag team wrestling in 2007 was very different to tag team wrestling today. I don't know if they necessarily even wanted to that much because I think they've always genuinely been chicken farmers. <laughs> and they don't really wrestle outside of Ring of Honor that much. So whenever there's not Ring of Honor on, they won't really bother with anything. Fair. Well, Brock likes to just stay on his farm, doesn't he? So exactly, country is a way of life to some people. I'm just looking at them. I'm just looking at Jay Briscoe's cage match thing, and like it's all Ring of Honor or CMLL and New Japan, which are through trade partnerships for like the last two or three years. I'm trying to look for anything. There's a thing called WSW and FCP in 2018 that they're a part of. But yeah, it's just basically Ring of Honor and occasional guest spots. A WXW, and then it's all just Ring of Honor, just Ring of Honor. And I think it's pretty cool that there's this one act that's been there from day one, and that was the whole thing, except for a few blips here and there. But like I said, 2007 was when they were just all built around. Yeah, I'm just looking at it here, and this is like 
for the entirety of the 2010s, they've had maybe 30 matches outside of Ring of Honor in the whole 10 years that they've done it. Probably is busy keeping a chicken farm in Delaware. Yeah, it keeps them happy. So yeah, like I said, I don't expect psychology masterclasses from them, unfortunately. But if you can do the moves right, that's why they're such a perfect mesh with Dragon Gates. Yeah, yes. Where it is just intricate moves at a fast pace, no let up, and just never getting anything wrong. It just looks so smooth. That's why I think as well, seeing it live was just... I've seen a one-take, 22-minute intricate fight sequence that never once really went wrong properly. And seeing it live really makes you appreciate this is the only chance they get to do this, and they have to do it right. It's weirdly placed for me, purely because it's the semi-main. And like, I'm, I'd, if I was Nigel or like Joe, I'd be like, what the fuck do we do now? <laughs> well, the whole purpose of Ring of Honor was supposed to be you have to have great matches. And so you're expecting two or three matches on the card to be out and out great. And that there are people that are encouraged to try to steal the show. And obviously because it was an unexpected title change. Cause like, I think because you're always thinking about the booking. And one of the things that Ring of Honor fans wanted was they wanted long title reigns. And boy did they get them with Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson. There's a metatextual element to it where the fans are in constant conversation subliminally with the booker. And the booker saying, I know what this is and I know what wouldn't insult your intelligence. But also one of the things that was wise with Gabe was occasionally he'd throw a spanner in and surprise you. Because you're like, well, the Briscoe's going to be booked really solidly strong. And they were. Like, throughout this whole year, they were having two out of three falls matches. And the whole gimmick with the Briscoes was they would always win them two straights. Ah, okay. oh, that was how dominant they were. Even in their feud with Steen and Generico, when they wrestled them in a two out of three falls match, they beat them two straights. So that's just clever booking, like un- uh, usurping it when you when you felt like it. And also, you know, there's a certain amount of politics. It's good for them because also, you know, they've got Matt Seidel's won a Dragon Gate title, so it's only fair that Dragon Gate get one of their guys winning a Ring of Honor title. So they dropped it the next show in America. I think they maybe defended it on the night after in, in Liverpool. I think it was against Roderick Strong and David Rich. One of the reasons this is the best match I watched in wrestling is I haven't watched a lot of live wrestling. I don't go to a lot of live shows. There was a period I went to see some shows in Sutton Coldfield when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. And again, Ring of Honor weren't coming to town, so see what you can get. So I was watching shows in the Sutton Coldfield Town Hall for K-Star Wrestling. And that was fun in and of itself. That was just a little local thing of just, like, local lads who'd been trained up. Some of them were, like, only, like, 13, 14. And then it was this... And the WWE show, and really not much. Oh, and some, like, you know, the holiday camps. Like, oh, yeah, we weren't yeah, even yeah, yeah. well off enough to go to Butlins, so we were getting, like, the, the cast off some <laughs> I've never had a problem with going to, like, see comedy show. You know, I go up to Edinburgh every year, and pretty much all of those, not all of those, but the majority of them now have been on my own. I go to the cinema on my own very regularly until the end of times happened. I'll even go to a restaurant, well, maybe not a fancy restaurant, but a pub or, or a fast food outlet, and I have no problem eating on my own there. But a wrestling show, it was always, it's an interactive thing, and I just never felt comfortable in that kind of oh, atmosphere. Okay. And also, I'm not a huge fan of wrestling fans, <laughs> as I've said in the past. You made that abundantly um, clear at the start of this. <laughs> I'm sure each and every listener that is listening to us is a very fine person that I'd be happy to meet and would enjoy going to a wrestling show with. But, I mean, if you'd have, you know, if we weren't living, what, 50 miles away from each other, I think we'd have probably gone to something more than just the the one Raw and SmackDown show we went to. And there, I did see your hatred of wrestling fans for all the amount of wooing we heard. Hatreds! 
probably justified, but at the same time, I want to say it's excessive. I was going to say, don't you try and climb down. I saw the look in your eyes. <laughs> but that also, that is an element of that is misanthropy as well. It's not just the, the wrestling public. It's been the public in general. But then I'll say the lockdowns made me appreciate that I do need some sort of interaction with people even if it's just on a a minor level being stuck on my own we always my mates always used to joke that if i was in prison i'd be like in oz or something i'd just be shitting in my hand and attacking everyone (laughs) put me in the hole mcmanus because that was seen as like the big punishment solitary confinement whereas i'd be like finally (laughs) now having essentially been put in the hole for a year i can appreciate what it is i need out of other people an interaction with them. yeah I've... i think it's just the shared humanity you're looking yeah. for really but wrestling just sometimes can feel a bit excessive in spite of what you might think from podcasts i'm not a loud shouty person and i i've always thought i'd be a bad audience member for a wrestling show a lot of the time anyway because i don't let my inhibitions go <laughs> and go cheering and whooping or or take part in any chanting really Aww. and we'll talk a lot about that in the next episode so when the moment came at the end of this where Shingo hit. Is it the last of the dragon? The move that it nearly killed Hiroshi Tanahashi with. Yeah, it is last of the dragon, isn't it? Yeah. And one, I genuinely jumped up in the air with my arms, and I was like, "Whoa!" It takes a lot to get that out of me, and these four guys managed to do that. So that's why this match will always hold a special place in my heart. Uh, what are your observations from it? Sorry, obviously I've dominated this even more than most episodes. It is about your own personal experience, isn't it? So that's fair enough. I loved it. It was interesting to have like a look back at Shingo. Someone obviously we've been looking at a lot recently and will be looking at a lot, all being well in the future. He's really kicked on. Like He ages like a fine wine. He looks a lot better now than he does there. It makes me want to see more Briscoe stuff, but I'd have to do it sparingly. I don't think I could watch it all the time. Same like the Young Bucks, to be fair. They do their thing, but every week, meh. So after this show was where things got really interesting the show finished around 9 30 10 and i was like i'm guessing there'll be a train that will get me home but i also didn't know where i could call a taxi and i also didn't know how to get to liverpool train station from there i knew it wasn't far i tried to sort of memorize the routes as the guy was driving from when yeah. i was on the taxi yeah i just started walking and walking and walking until i got to liverpool railway station i think there were literally no trains i can't remember if i even could get into the station at that point so then i went to the nearby national express bus station Ooh. that was where i encountered some ring of honor fans who'd been there as well and that was where i was told the story about jimmy jacobs and the water bottles i had an a fan interaction that was pleasant yeah. So I won't, you know, don't make me as a hundred percent a hater of all people. The buses were taking ages, and there were two buses, and we couldn't. All the people that were queued up to get on the buses couldn't fit in. Ooh. And so they said, "Yes, this is what happened." They said, "The rest of you guys will get onto the follow-through bus, the 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 excesses bus, and we'll bring that bus in." That was the original bus driver told us that. And then we were on the bus, and as it was pulling out of Liverpool Station, it said, "This bus is going to London only." <laughs> Right. (laughs) And me and the wrestling fans were not going to London. So we were like, what what are you talking about? And this was after the first bus had left. And they said, don't worry, there'll be a follow-up bus that will take on the rest of you and take all the excess and take you over. 
Like I said, everyone else that was going on the bus were going to London except for me and the other wrestling fans. So then we get off. So I think there must have been four of us, maybe. So we get stopped off in Stoke. It was around Stoke. It was a Stoke service station. I know it was nearby Stoke. And uh, we wait for a while and then that bus comes. And it's the original bus Ah. with the not very nice driver who didn't seem to want to help people. And he said there are four... It was either five or four of us in total. He said, that's one too many. I don't have enough for all of you. There's one that can't. And I made the sacrifice. I said, well, you guys are all together, so I'll wait for the next bus. That next bus didn't come until the morning. But in the interim, I was able to go to the Premier Inn. The receptionist at the Premier Inn was there, and he just had nothing to do because he just got nothing to do. And he said, I can't let you into a room. I didn't have enough money for a room. He said, I can't let you into a room because that triggers an alarm, so you can't sleep there. So they had a sofa. But the thing is, they had a sofa that was clearly designed for you not to be able to fall asleep in it. It was not a sofa for one person to lay out fully across. So I tightly put myself in. And he said to me, after my shift's finished, I'll drop you off at Stoke-on-Trent train station. And you can get the train from Stoke to... That's nice. From there. Yeah, but then in the mornings, like, the first National Express coach came along. Uh... And so I got that one instead. I jumped on that and got off at Birmingham. Walked from Birmingham Digbeth coach station to the bus stop. And finally reached my bed sit in Erdington (laughs) on this Sunday. And... This was another thing. You know when you worn your jeans long enough that the crotch is starting to go? All the uh, uh, festivities that had happened by then. I mean, the crotch was already going. By the end of it, you could put your fist through both the holes on either side. And I stank. And I really hadn't had any sleep. But I genuinely, part of me was like, could I make it back to Liverpool tonight to get to the (laughs) second show? And I think it was just the state of my trousers that that stopped me from doing that. I think that was the only thing that stopped me from doing it. Because it genuinely was like the first full weekend that wasn't related to having holiday, I don't think, that I had off work. Because when you work at HMV, you have to work Saturdays and you work pretty much every other Sunday. And you work 11 of the 14 days. So you never get like a two-day block off. Unless you were lucky like I was. For a long time, I would get Mondays as my designated day off. So my weekend would be Sunday-Monday, whereas everyone else's was Saturday-Sunday. And that was it. I just collapsed on my mattress. I didn't have a bed at that point. I literally just had a mattress on the floor. I remember I remember my mates coming into that bed sit at one point. Because I'm like by far the least... Well, like Everyone else in my, of my group of friends are all very middle class. And despite what it might sound like, I am not of that breeding. And you just, you know, like I said, you're in your early 20s. You're a mess anyway as to what you think is the right way to behave and everything. And my one of my mates was just looking. <laughs> he's just he's sort of walking across this bed, you know, like there's a, t- there's a computer and that. but And he just looks at my mattress. And then he just bends over to the other side where we can't see and pulls up. Uh, like a half a packet of chocolate digestives because I genuinely just on my bedside I didn't have a bedside table but I just had a bedside (laughs) some biscuits if I fancied having a biscuit oh mate now it's just a bottle of water to help you with your dry mouth in the morning but yeah so that was a hell of a day and a night and a day after unsurprisingly that's a big chapter in my book which I just found out it sold its 50th copy quite recently yeah, and it was like I was looking at the r- royalties, and by far the highest royalties figure was for rupees. I was like, "Have I sold an insane number of books in India?" And it's like, "No, a rupee just equals like less than a penny." 
So I sold one book in India. <laughs> but that, by far, like if you go in rupees against dollars and everything, as a number, it's a higher number than any other one. Every journey starts with the first step. You never know. Maybe that's the market you break. Get the great Carly in as a guest. Well, I think when all this nightmare is over, you and I will have to do some more live stuff. We'll have to make a thing of like go and see something live once a year. I mean, we've already said that our goal by the end of this decade will have gone to see either Wrestle Kingdom or Dominion or the G1 Climax Finals in Japan at some point this decade, I think is a reasonable goal. That's on, that's on me board, yeah. And assuming we're podcasting still, we'll podcast that. Do you have any other points or questions or anything else about that experience? Questions about your life choices, but you co- you covered that off by saying you were in your early 20s. As a man who has been through his early 20s, you don't choose wisely sometimes. <laughs> Actually, I was just thinking a month after that, I moved out of that bed. So I must, yeah, because I remember I moved out on, on April Fool's Day. <laughs> so a month later, I wasn't living there anymore. Which was nice. Fair. I've got some stories from that time. I think you've told me one of them, and that's a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. I won't go into that here. Just suffice to say, like many stories, it began with the words, I ordered a pizza. (laughs) If we do a live show and someone asks, I will tell the story that starts with, I I ordered a pizza. (laughs) But we'll hold off on that for another time. I think that's going to be enough for this episode. Like I said, it's more about the experience in live wrestling. So I'm giving you my favourite live wrestling experience. Simon, your pick is our next live wrestling experience. What is our next Match of the Week episode going to be about? And see, now I feel like a big time Charlie, because mine's NXT TakeOver Dallas, and it's uh, Sami Zayn taking on the debuting Shinsuke Nakamura. You're so fucking corporate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proper hipster. I'm like the guy who's got the record of the band you probably haven't heard of. You're the guy that buys the fucking... Oh, you've run out of steam now, haven't you? You're the guy that... I'm the guy that goes to the proper folk clubs. You're the guy that gets the Mumford & Sons <laughs> record. How dare you? <laughs> but anyway, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, and tell you more about their Mumford & Sons collections, <laughs> how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of coaches mentioned in your travel story. My name's Lorca Mullinus, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A, at the end of the Liverpool Olympia, and N for National Express. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox, if you're putting at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you want to fancy throwing a few pennies our way so we can afford the travel expenses for these live shows and not have to sleep on a sofa not designed for sleep in a Premier Inn. Lorca needs trousers. Yeah, or if you want to get me some more trousers, then you go to patreon.com slash lmtyspod. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorca Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time. (laughs) 